Welcome to Spark Science. I'm your host, Regina Barber DeGraff. I'm an astrophysicist and educator at Western Washington University. In this episode, we get to talk about something we've all become more familiar with throughout the past year, misinformation. Our guest today is a cognitive scientist named Nikita Salovich, and she's here to help us understand how to keep our friends and ourselves from falling for lies that sound like truths. Last season, we had an episode talking about how do you convince your friend that maybe they're being told things that aren't quite full of facts? And we had Dr. Maktoufi, and today we have one of Dr. Maktoufi's friends, <laughs> a PhD candidate in cognitive psychology at Northwestern, Nikita Salovich. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to really thank you for talking to us because I know that there's a lot of stuff in the media about people talking about the vaccines, things that are true, things that are not true, things that are put out in the media to scare people, to give them hope. So what exactly is your research? Yeah, so generally I'm trying to better understand and support the way that people learn and interact with information. I specifically study the consequences of being exposed to false or misleading information, including why it influenced people's judgments and decisions, even in cases when people should know better, like when they have the prior knowledge or an outside resource available to determine that a given claim is false. I find that people often fail to think critically about the accuracy of information, even though they are both capable and benefit from doing so. I use a combination of lab experiments and surveys and social media data to analyze my research questions. Tell our listeners a little more about what you mean about lab experiments, because when we're talking about psychology, it's uh, I think when people think lab, they think of like beakers and, and, you know, telescopes and microscopes. But that's not exactly what you're talking about, I'm guessing. No, not exactly. We have a pretty cool eye tracker in the lab that would probably give some telescopes a run for their money. But um, the type of lab experiments that I do, instead of it being with molecules or with particular substances that you may see in some biological or other physical science, sciences, we study people. So I have participants come into the lab and we do randomized trials of showing people particular kinds of information or testing different interventions to get people to think critically or in a different way and compare those interventions or those groups of people with control groups, just like you would in traditional lab experiments that you may be thinking of. I mostly use these lab experiments. So these are materials that I create or that my advisor creates or other. Oh, and you see how far they go. I see. Exactly. So we, we create these statements. So let's say a, a list of 80 true and false statements about the world. And we randomly present participants with true and false statements and ask them to rate how interesting these statements are one at a time. And then we give them an open answer general knowledge questionnaire that in some of the questions asked about the statements that they saw previously. And then we look at the extent to which people reproduce the false information that they had seen. And especially in cases where we already tested them to have the correct prior knowledge, but they regurgitate this false information anyway. And so I guess in a sense, we use these kind of can true false general knowledge statements because it lets us exhibit a degree of control as cognitive scientists 
and to have this sort of um, lab experimental design that studying misinformation in the real world often does not allow. And so we're able to craft these statements in a particular certain way and manipulate what, what they see and how much justification we give to participants, so on and so forth. So we can make these causal conclusions about the ways that what people see affects what they uh, think or at least report to be true later on. I want to talk about you, Nikita, and like, how did you get into your field? Yeah, well, the short answer is that I kind of accidentally became a cognitive scientist. Don't get me wrong, I very intentionally and full-heartedly prepared my PhD applications. It was an opportunity that just fell into my lap, but pursuing a PhD in cognitive psychology or studying cognitive science was definitely unexpected. But a good unexpected turn of events. My major in undergrad was biology. It was my favorite subject growing up and I liked the idea of going to medical school at least until I took organic chemistry. But I realized after a couple of years on this path that I was more interested in the people in my class than I was in the molecules, how people learn versus what we were learning. So I went to the University of Minnesota, which for those of you who don't know is a really huge school. The size of the campus and the student body is great if you had like an awkward date in the dining hall, never wanted to see someone again. But it was also hard to make connections with in classes with a few hundred students in the lecture hall. And I learned that pretty quickly and used to challenge myself to make at least one friend or buddy in all of my classes. And I would sit by them during lecture. I was always nervous about getting the cold shoulder, but people were generally pretty friendly. And plus, I always shared my notes. Well, on my first day of earth science class, I set out on my mission to find my buddy. I saw someone sitting by themselves near the back of the auditorium and they seemed friendly enough. We can call him Sam. He turned out to be a whiz <laughs> at biology, gender neutral, but was, was a man. <laughs> whiz at biology as I think that he could use my flashcards as copy coasters and still ace every exam. But what I remember most vividly about that class is how mid-semester, one of our lectures was interrupted by a protest of flat earthers who stormed the stage and refused to let my professor continue teaching. Just to make sure we're on the same page, what I mean by flat earthers is people who genuinely <laughs> believe that the earth is flat, like has an edge and you can fall off of it and not a sphere. Well, guess who was on the stage with a picket sign and all? My buddy, Sam. The Sam who was acing earth science. So as you can imagine, I felt a lot of emotions during this experience, but most of all, I was really intrigued. How could this budding biologist, my dear friend, have this incorrect belief about the state of the natural world? How did he form this misconception? And would I ever be able to get him to change his mind? Wow. Honestly, I don't know if Sam ever changed his mind. You like just cut that. ties. At the yeah, <laughs> he, he fell off the face of the earth, Literally. pun intended, after that <laughs> class. But it did open up a can of worms about all the questions I wanted to ask about how people misunderstand the world. Ultimately, it led me to study what I'm studying now, the cognitive science of how people are influenced by misinformation. Was there any other instances as you were like going through undergrad or, or now in grad school that you did follow all the way through? You did have an interaction where you saw some amount of change, even if it was a little. 
with what you've learned? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. I think as most people can relate, I have family members that have (laughs) different beliefs about the world. And I think as I have become more and more confident about the best ways to talk to these individuals that hold beliefs that are different from mine, I've also have uh, made more traction, gained more ground in terms of being able to influence their thoughts and behaviors and do so strategically versus emotionally, which is definitely something that I struggled with having my blood boil a bit when I disagreed with someone from a scientific perspective, but I'm able to cool my jets now and make more of an impact in that way. It takes a lot (laughs) to cool your jets. It does. It takes patience. Well, I mean, speaking of, I think when we all see misinformation in front of us, we get really, you know, emotional, but um, I also get emotional when I see things that happened in the past where I like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. Right. So in your studies or in your research, can you give us a story of something that happened in the past before the pandemic of like an instance of misinformation that really spread wildly in, in society? Yeah, that's a great question. Misinformation has existed far before the pandemic, unfortunately, and even before the time I started graduate school and even the times before either of us was even born. Right. I mean, Um, there's propaganda, right? (laughs) Absolutely. We use this term fake news and it gained a lot of traction and surge of interest and misinformation around the time of the 2016 presidency. But before then, for example, Nazi propaganda was used during World War II to spread anti-Semitic hate. And the tradition of tabloids publishing rumors as facts has been a popular attention-grabbing tactic for years now. And I think it's important with that question to recognize that we don't get our information from just sources that were intended to inform us like news articles. We also pick it up from sources where the main goal is to entertain us like fictional books and movies and also sources where it's kind of in between entertainment and information like podcasts or social media. And research from my lab finds that fiction or not, Exposure to false information influences what we believe to be true about the real world. It's not just fake news and disinformation that we need to worry about. That said, misinformation has been shown to affect the way that we think and navigate the world, very much so. Some researchers have even attributed major world events, including that 2016 U.S. election, the 2019 measles outbreak in the Mm -hmm. U.S., And of course, the recent surge in COVID-19 cases and hesitancy around the vaccine due to the circulation of false information, particularly on. You're listening to Spark Science, and we're discussing the foundations of misinformation. Research has showed that false information travels faster and wider than true news. So that means that it reaches more people and it reaches more people quicker. And this is because a lot of times misinformation is surprising. It's something that we wouldn't expect, or it's really enticing to believe. And because of that, it plays into these biases of what we want to be true. I had a college roommate who one time told me excitedly that she had read somewhere that redheads need more sleep. And so therefore, (laughs) I could not play music in the morning while I took a shower. Mm -hmm. And guess what color hair she had? I'm guessing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
And so wherever she heard that information, I think it was from one of the people magazines that we had laying on our dining <laughs> room table or something, to be completely honest, she was more likely or to accept that information is true or conversely, less likely to scrutinize that information, right? So we have this bias toward accepting things that we already agree with. And we have this bias toward not rejecting or not thinking critically about things that we want to be true because they sound really great. And it would be great to live in a universe where redheads did need more sleep, but to our knowledge, that is not not true. (laughs) Well, it just, it reminds me of all those news articles that are like, oh, coffee's good for you. Coffee's bad for you. Red wine is good for you. Red wine is bad for you. And you know, you know, you have those people that are like, well, I drink you know, a lot of red wine or I, dr- or I'm, I'm a coffee drinker. Right. So thank God this is actually going to help me rid off dementia or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And because we live in an environment where you're faced with so much information, a single Google search can come with hundreds of thousands of hits of articles. The way that we even search for information affects what we view. If you think, if you're a chocolate lover, right. you may be more inclined to Google the benefits of chocolate versus the cons of eating chocolate, right? And so in doing so, you are going to be faced with information that's confirmatory versus disconfirmatory. And also a, a, a little bit of a scary thing, but these search engines remember our types of searches. and Right. Our so it's going to give you more of these positive yeah. about chocolate. Um, exactly. It's stories. a feedback loop. Yeah, that would be a combination of confirmation bias and motivated reasoning. Right. People also generally like things that are familiar to them. They tend to find solace in people that look like them, talk like them, have similar interests. And that can be a bad thing when we use that as a cue for whether a source is reliable or accurate. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, if someone learns that so-and-so person also has the same birthday as them, also they're attractive, went to the same university for undergrad, have a cat that has the same name as you, whatever, that you may be more likely to trust them, even if they're not a reliable source. Like, perhaps going to the University of Minnesota, just like me, makes you a more reliable source because you have a college education, but also having a cat that's named Lentil probably doesn't do that, even though I'm (laughs) more likely to think positively of you. This is Spark Science, and we're talking with cognitive scientist Nikita Salovich about misinformation in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. We apologize in advance for the internet connection issues mid-interview. Let's get to like then the pandemic itself. What have you seen in your field that's been very concerning during this pandemic? I think that like many world events, uh, people, there is a surge of information that is circulating, but also unique to situations such as the pandemic. People are experiencing a heightened level of fear or very strong emotional responses, which can lead to less scrutiny of information and abandonment of logic. And as humans, we're already not very logical, but when we're experiencing intense emotions, 
are latching on to these biases and heuristics and these quick rules of thumb of how we process and jump to conclusions becomes even more and more extreme. And so I think that that is a large concern right now and has been for scientists as people are being exposed to false information because of the extreme fear that people have. And also the current divides and polarization uh, in the political sphere now in the U.S. It, across the world, but particularly in the U.S. right now, we're experiencing some of the greatest divides in political ideology than ever before. And right now, health is becoming a partisan issue with the pandemic, and that is something that even though has been experienced in the past or seen in the past, it is something that can be extremely dangerous where you view taking an action that is objectively and scientifically shown to be the healthier decision and to be the better decision for the population as a whole, if you view that to be a political decision or a decision where you're abandoning your values as a one party or another, then that becomes extremely dangerous because it's dissuading people from making decisions that could very much save their lives. So, I mean, that's a really good point. And, and as somebody who, you know, teaches a science communication class, and I'm sure you, Nikita, you've, you've seen this in your labs. The solution for that, though, is not to just give people facts, though, right? Like, that's not going to work either. But it seems to be this, like, gut reaction a lot of scientists um, want to do or are taught. But what does your research show? What can we do to counteract that misinformation? Because I get a lot of pushback from scientists to be like, well, we can't appeal to people's feelings because that's cheating. And I'm like, people have feelings. So no, I, I think that that's a really great question. There is definitely an art for the best practice of helping people realize that what they may be seeing or believing or sharing and such is incorrect. And even though it's not something that we deliberately think about all the time, there is an important difference between telling someone that they're wrong and helping them learn the correct information. Right. So we should be more, be putting more emphasis on the, on correcting people's knowledge versus telling people that they're wrong in our conversations. And I think the main difference between those two things is that the former or telling someone that they're wrong can be accusatory and even cause reactance. Being wrong is something that none of us want to hear, whether it's getting a question wrong on an exam. It's particularly important to acknowledge this when attempting to correct misinformation that is politically or ideologically loaded is that information may be important in maintaining coherence of other beliefs that they have or even central to their worldview. Approaching the situation as you're wrong and I'm right can scare people away and make them tune you out. In some extreme cases, it can even make them dig their heels deeper, existing misinformed belief in order to defend themselves and prevent their worldview from crumbling or to protect themselves from feeling silly or incompetent. So if someone starts tuning you out because the emphasis of how you approach the conversation is in what ways they are wrong and incompetent, it doesn't allow you the opportunity to do what you likely care about most, which is telling them what is right. So the flip side to that is this potentially accusatory approach 
is instead that you can approach a conversation with a misinformed individual with the primary objective of correcting their misinformed idea or belief versus with a compelling laundry list of all of the ways that they are ignorant. So this completely changes the tone of the conversation. You no longer want or can afford to alienate this individual. You have to win them over with the patience and enthusiasm for truth so that they listen to what you have to say. So if someone shares with they are hesitant in getting the COVID-19 vaccine, instead of jumping in immediately with how ludicrous their idea is, take a deep breath, let your blood come down from a boil to a simmer, and try to open the door for conversation rather than slamming it in their face. One way to let them know that you're listening and that even though their belief is wrong, that you're not, is that they're not alone in holding it. So for example, you could start out by telling them, I've heard other people have that concern, or I actually had a similar conversation with my cousin the other day, or I actually used to think that for a while too. You may be thinking, isn't it bad to reaffirm that others hold their beliefs? While it's important not to let the conversation end at the affirmation that they're not alone in their hesitancy, establishing that your following response is not out of the aim to belittle them, but instead to reiterate new, more reliable information is very important. If your cousin could change their mind about the COVID vaccine, then maybe your childhood friend could too. But there's another side too, right? Like, yes, we as scientists or science-minded people that are kind of um, for the vaccine have this conversation and we have to like take a deep breath and and really listen but i think that there's a lot of things that go into all of these conversations for instance um um, you hear people like anyone who's doesn't want to take the vaccine i hear a lot of my colleagues say this is just an awful person they're a monster they're dumb um, and, and especially i have a lot of white colleagues that don't understand why communities of color are um, suspicious of, of the vaccine and suspicious of medical people. And the reason is because of history, right? Like um, communities of color, especially black Americans have been used as guinea pigs in, in the past, right? So like, and so to not trust the medicine has, has some evidence to it in our society in in our country. And a lot of my colleagues don't know that. So to not, to really not know your audience is I think the problem with a lot of these conversations. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's why making sure that it's a conversation and not a monologue is so important. That's why you would be able to, you know, and maybe even ask questions about why someone feels hesitant versus assuming that it's because they don't have the correct information. I think that we have to be empathetic in these situations, even if we may want to jump to these accusatory conclusions or accusatory dialogue monologues versus dialogues. I think it's really also important for our listeners because there are people that you will not turn, right? You just won't. And, or you don't even know, right? Like you don't have a connection to, but like, we're talking about people who are part of your life that you are willing or interested in, in changing that. That's a different story. There's some conversations you will not win. Exactly. And I think that sometimes we find ourselves in these conversations, even if we don't want to. And one of the if you are like in the middle, and you're not exactly in the comfortable position of being able to express your beliefs or new information to someone, a Another go-to to fighting misinformation to add to your toolkit would be to starting with a, 
is starting with a question rather than an assertion. So it may help the person realize that their argument or idea doesn't make as much sense as they thought. So in a situation, for example, um, where you're, you may be eating with, I don't know, a a great aunt of sorts that may have a, a certain conspiracy theory about how the world works. Um, you can ask her like, where did you get that information? Are you sure that it is a reliable source of information? Have you seen the latest information released by so-and-so source? So in this way, asking people to question their own beliefs does a lot of the hard work for you with a lower risk at alienating that person you're working hard to have an open conversation with. You're listening to Spark Science. It's now one of our favorite portions of the show where we discuss how the field of cognitive science is portrayed in pop culture. Hi, can you think of a time where there is a cognitive scientist in a movie or a comic book or something like that. How are the, how is your field portrayed? I would say that there's a general perception of misinformation <laughs> researchers or people who study misinformation um, as being political scientists. And mm. while it's no secret that lots of mis and disinformation that we hear about is related to political topics, there exists so much more and so much research on the detrimental effects of nonpartisan inaccurate or misleading information. And so in my opinion, there's an uh, overemphasis on pitting one political party versus another and who is more misinformed or, or have you studied Republicans versus Democrats? And it's a little known fact that over and above people's political ideologies, even uh, an even better predictor of falling for false information and sharing fake news is how cognitively lazy people are. So, <laughs> Tell us more about that. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So people generally are cognitive misers. We don't like giving much thought to anything. So the stuff that we see, for example, online, a lot of people don't think critically about it. It doesn't matter your particular demographics in a way people just don't want to evaluate it. And so I think that we need to start getting into the mindset that everyone, even ourselves, even me as a misinformation researcher is influenced by inaccurate or misleading claims because of this cognitive science behind it. And once we accept that, I think that we can, we can become more humble in how we approach our information sphere, but also in how we react to others who may be misinformed. I, if there is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with our listeners, like the like you were saying the the um, misconceptions people have about cognitive scientists, yeah, um, or anything else? Yeah, I'm I I'm not sure. I, I guess I would say I, I would just want to emphasize that um, we have to take it on ourselves to be more deliberate consumers of information. Well, I think that a lot of people put emphases on, um, let's say, interventions put in place by social media companies or news outlets and journalists. I think that people should take matters into their own hands as the information consumers, because let's be honest, there's no way we can get rid of every single inaccurate claim, especially with the internet. But what we can do is help people produce and recognize when and how to evaluate the information that they see and hear day to day. 
Um, also, I would want to emphasize that cognitive science and psychology are definitely sciences. <laughs> I think that the variables that we study are a lot different. In fact, that the, and often the variables that I study are invisible, like people's preferences or intelligence, and or they're that not tangible. Can, Exactly. They're not tangible, but just because we can't see them in the traditional sense or measure them as consistently as like with a thermometer in measuring temperature, they're still there and they right. still impact every decision that we make. We'd like to thank Nikita Salovich for taking time away from her PhD studies to talk to us about fake news. We wish her a smooth dissertation and defense in the future. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded in Bellingham, Washington, in my house, on my computer, during the great pandemic that's still going on as of May 2021. Our producers are Suzanne Blaze and myself, Regina Barber-DeGraff. Our audio engineers for this episode are Julia Thorpe and Zarek Coakley. The script writer for today's episode was also Zarek Coakley. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. And if there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Thank you for listening to Spark Science.